Rob, uh, it's the first rest day of the Giro. Uh, it seems like uh, an age ago that the Giro actually started, but what, we're eight days in, or eight stages in, rather, and uh, we're on day 10, in fact. Uh, how's it been? Yeah, it's been good. Uh, on the second rest day now, kind of, with... Uh, um, well, first... day one was... The first one was travelling, no? Yeah, first one was travelling, so you can kind of call it a travel day, kind of a rest day with uh, no rest racing between uh, race days three and four, riders moving from Hungary, where they started the first three days of the Tour of Italy, which is kind of counterintuitive, um, but now they're in Italy proper, and um, since stage four, all the racing's been there, so yeah, now second day of no racing, but this time no big travelling for the riders. They just get to stay still and hopefully relax after a brutal couple of days racing. Let's go into it uh, briefly, Rob, just for listeners. So this is uh, the first Grand Tour of the season, Giro d'Italia, uh, effectively a tour of Italy. Um, not the first time, but they've started the, um, the first few stages in another country, this time being Hungary. Why did they do that? Oh, um, I think generally, I think um, places this time, I think Budapest can pay quite a lot of money financially. It's massive uh, for their tourism. You can uh, be on be on TV around the world showing you the best parts of your tourism industry off quite a lot. And uh, yeah, that money goes a long way to race organisers. Um, that's kind of the reason for it. And we see similar later on this year at the Tour de France, where that will be starting in Copenhagen. Um, I'm sure that'll probably be a, a lot more to have the first few days of the tour than the Giro. But uh, yeah, great um, advertising for a, for a tourism department, for sure. And uh, I myself will actually be going to Denmark and Copenhagen that time. So so yeah, there's a couple hundred pounds for the Danish tourist industry because I wouldn't be going to Denmark otherwise. But, but yeah. Absolutely. And um, so we're going to have a live live coverage of the Tour de France, is that what you're saying, Rob? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get my phone out and uh, everyone who's not got a GCN subscription <laughs> or doesn't know where to look for some pirated uh, streams, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stream it through to you, so yeah. Brilliant. Uh, we haven't actually gone into that, we've, we've done a few race reviews, uh, so for uh, someone who's just getting into pro racing, where is the best way to watch or even catch up on uh, the racing, as in not just in audio form, but um, visual as well. Uh, so, yeah, obviously best place in audio form would be this podcast, for sure. Um, but, yeah, live racing, watching the live racing, it would be on uh, GCN on Eurosport. And I think it's kind of on part of the Discovery Channel network now. I'm right. Uh, but, yeah, simplest way is to go on to GCN, get a year subscription. I believe it's £40. It might have changed since I purchased it. And uh, yeah, then basically every every significant race, male, female, um, road, cyclocross, and very occasionally mountain bike, um, will be on there for you to watch. Um, but yeah, just forty pounds a year, so not not too much, not excessive um, compared to how much you have to pay for football, UFC, and boxing. But yeah, obviously a bit. But yeah, you can really get into it. Lots of hours, lots of content to watch. Yeah, it's brilliant, and. Uh... I actually watch uh, a lot of highlights and catch up on YouTube. So they do a, a free four-minute clip on YouTube. However, 
I found uh, when I've watched the live uh, footage and then watched the highlights, the highlights really do not do it justice. No, no, it's hard to. Some days, like uh, it's been a good couple of days in the Giro where, you, yeah, you really can't condense it down into three or four minutes and you need a full day at, at work, kind of having it on on a minimized screen and occasionally looking over, looking over, seeing what's kicking off. But um, yeah, definitely good to, good to have options of where to watch it. But yeah. Sometimes they do extended highlights as well, around 10 minutes, and you can, you can probably glean quite a lot of the race from that. But yeah, kind of... That's probably just on GCN, right? I haven't seen something like that on YouTube. Uh, oh, there's various places. Like, I think for the classics, a lot of the classics, um, like Paris-Roubaix, I think they might have stretched out to 10 minutes. But yeah, for Grand Tour racing, like Giro stages, it might be three minutes. They seem quite sporadic and uh, not that consistent with how long the highlights are. But yeah. Uh, just touching on going abroad again uh, quickly, Rob. Um, it just seems like across the sporting world, um, companies or industries are, are pushing this. So we have things like, you know, the biggest Premier League teams going over to places like China or America to play their friend, pre-season friendlies. You have American football having some of the games abroad. You have La Liga, so the Spanish uh, football team, having some of their finals um, in uh, places like China as well. So there seems to be a real push to globalise and effectively uh, expand their reach and bring in more money, effectively. Um, and cycling, I guess, in many ways, is just cashing in. Uh, you've got uh, big world tour races going to places like Saudi Arabia now as well, the UAE. Uh, so, yeah, it just seems like a trend across the sporting world and not just in cycling. Um, but, yeah, I guess uh, in some ways it's a good thing and in other ways it's a it's a questionable thing because uh, Hungary, as well as Israel previously, have uh, uh, questionable human rights records. Um, I guess if you look into any country, really, uh, you could criticise what they do. Uh, so, Yeah, Israel as well, another one that hosted, um, I believe Israel hosted the Giro Grand Depart uh, a couple of years back, and that's why... I think Froome was paid quite an exceptional amount of money to go to that Giro because they really wanted him there. Um, so yeah, definitely a lot of politics involved in it all, which I'm not that not that knowledgeable on. But yeah, yeah some I think also the teams as well. You got like Bahrain victorious and UAE. Um, yeah. Some people have questioned the. I guess money's money at the end of the day, and big teams aren't going to turn people down. Uh, I'm not too aware of what those countries' politics really are, to be honest. But yeah, yeah I know some people raise questions. So, so yeah, interesting, but definitely interesting places money comes from. I think same with Chelsea Football Club; they're only being kicked out uh, recently as well. So yeah, very widespread in sport, um, and yeah, kind of elite sport is big business, and you can't really choose where your money comes from, sadly. Yeah, so. I so, guess yeah. you can't, in, in that same way, you can't separate politics from uh, sports, really. And no, no, very intertwined, like Olympics as well. A lot of uh, prime ministers, world leaders really want the country to do well. Um, I don't know, don't quite understand the reasons behind it, whether it's tourism or just being seen as a good, strong country. But yeah, throughout history, definitely a lot of uh, world leaders have pushed for that. And I think GPs probably one of the big ones in recent history for really putting a lot of money into their 
Olympic athletes and Olympic funding. So, so yeah, interesting. But uh, yeah, slightly sidetracked for the Giro here. <laughs> <laughs> just, just makes a good backstory, you know. So uh, straight on to stage one in that case. Um, brilliant win. Um, I think the writing was at the wall uh, a long time before he even went and uh, did it. But break it down for us, Rob. Yeah, so basically quite a flat stage going into a very short, punchy climb, quite a shallow gradient. And uh, yeah, Matthew van der Poel going in as a big favourite. It was um, kind of also suited other favourites with Biniam Gamay, Caleb Ewan, um, potentially Magnus Court was seen up there as well. And yeah, just an easy stage where it was pretty much guaranteed that uh, the whole bunch would come together to fight it out for the first person to kind of be the leader of the race and leader of the race after that, we'll get to wear the pink jersey, which is obviously mass- massive exposure for all teams involved. And yeah, the favourite, Matthew van der Poel, didn't disappoint taking what I'd consider not as big a win as I expected. I expected the gap to be bigger, but Binium Gamay, uh, young Eritrean rider who's really shone in this first few days of the Giro really pushing him close and and yeah a great stage to watch and all kicking off in kind of the last 5k so yeah uh, it's incredible like uh, it came down to the front three uh, which quickly became front two um, yeah Ewan, um, which is surprising you know he he, he uh, touched wheels towards the end with uh, Girmay uh, but it's surprising because uh, he had plenty of room there wasn't anyone else in that sprint. It was literally just them three up top. It wasn't at 50k per hour. It was a lot slower as they were going uphill. But he still managed to nick a wheel and uh, end up on the floor. Um, he managed to get up, obviously, but uh, just a bit of a shock, really. Um, you wouldn't expect that from a world-class sprinter. No, I think Caleb Ewan, clearly very anaerobic rider, um, kind of wasn't... Some people didn't expect him to really... Thought that climb would be too much for him. He's a very much a pure sprinter, but yeah, amazing that he could get up this climb in good enough condition to be semi-competitive. Don't think he'd have beaten Biniam or or Matthew in this race finale, but yeah, just basically must have been seeing absolute stars because he just rode straight into Biniam Gumhai's rear wheel and, and went down pretty hard. Um, definitely hurt himself. He was on the ground for a while, and whether that has hampered him in his for the other stages that we've seen so far, I'd say potentially it has done. And for Lotto Sudal, who really have uh, just Caleb Ewan as their sole star rider, um, quite a, a scary moment because uh, he could have been injured. So, so yeah. Brilliant win, as you mentioned, for Vanderpoel and his team uh, in the pink jersey. So he's been in the yellow now and uh, now in the pink. And uh, I just wanted to touch on... Uh, Young Eritrean, uh, I believe it's his first uh, first year in the World Tour, and he's making quite the name for himself. Yeah, Biniam Gamay, so second last year after under-23 world champs, putting in a great sprint there. Um, yeah, he put in some great results at the end of last year as well, and really, really stepping up as a rider this year, having won Ghent Wevelgum. Absolutely fantastic signing. I know we've already digged up into Marche Wanty Gobert um, previously on this podcast. But yeah, I don't think they'll be paying him much money currently. And I think really good to snap him up because this guy's got a lot of talent and being the first African rider in a 
long time to really have success like this or first African ever to have success of this level repeatedly makes him extremely marketable as well and great great to see in the sport um he's very young but already seems to have a lot of the attributes of Vanderpol and wouldn't be surprised if in a year or two he's he's on the same level to be honest I think this is really a star being born at this Giro so really impressive from him I'm sure we're not going to stop talking about him uh, on this podcast. And just uh, today as well, he, he's, he's got a number of top tens, uh, but we'll get into that. So stage two, uh, Van der Poel goes in as defending champion. Um, I actually spoke to a friend prior to stage two and he was like, who, who do you think is going to win? And uh, even though Van der Poel is not a time trialist, I had all my, although I'm not a betting man, uh, I had all my money on uh, Vanderpool to go and uh, get a win, you know, and uh, he didn't disappoint. He didn't quite get the win, but he definitely didn't disappoint. No, no. Uh, I think a lot of betting men would have lost money. Not many people saw Simon Yates coming to, to win, although I believe he was at quite long odds. Favourite, I believe, was Tom DeMoulin and uh, Vanderpool so expected to do well. Vanderpool only done really one or two time trials with full gas. Um, the last time trial he did, I believe, and maybe he's done more since, but the most memorable one and the only one where he's really put in a proper performance was at the Tour last year, where against most people's assumptions, he managed to keep the yellow jersey and I believe well within the top 10 of the uh, the first Tour time trial last year. This year he was said to have put a lot more effort into his time trialing and position, but Ultimately, only good enough for second on the day, head of Tom DeMoulin. But it was a uh, Simon Yates who took the win. Not one many people saw coming, um, but I think that final climb was uh, in this time trial was just enough to give him the edge to beat Van der Poel. Um, for me, I kind of had Simon Yates as a strong outsider. He put in a great time trial at uh, Terreno Adriatico earlier in the year, and this um, Giro field isn't full of great time trialists. There, he's only beaten by really strong time trialists such as Wout Van Aert, Roglic and Rowan Dennis. Um, and he wasn't far off time-wise. And yeah, uh, big kudos to Bike Exchange for getting Simon Yates prepped like this. He's clearly got a, his position on his new giant, Trinity, extremely aerodynamic. And and his um, his bars, have, I presume, must be 3D printed to fit his arms because they really do look like something special. And a lot, a lot ahead of many, many riders within this World Tour, his setup. So, so yeah, enough for him to take the win by three seconds. And for him, being the first GC rider, the first serious GC rider by quite a fair way, only Yaul Almeida would probably be the second out of those considered to be serious GC riders in 11th. And he lost 18 seconds, so quite a significant amount to Simon Yates in that first time trial. So uh, it's, 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 uh, much was said about Yates and his uh, fit on that time trial. Um, I, I wonder if he would have uh, held on had it been a lot longer. It was, what, nine kilometres or something from Budapest to back, back, back to the city, really. Yeah, 9.2 kilometres with uh, quite a climb at the end, I believe. One, yeah, 1.3 kilometres at 4.8%. So not a massive hill, but clearly enough uh, to give Simon Yates some edge over a much heavier Matthew Van der Poel. Uh, Matthew Van der Poel keeps his uh, pink jersey into stage three. And uh, now it's the last day in Hungary. 
bit of a what kind of stage is this one, Rob? So yeah, after two two quite interesting days, we're in for more of a sedate day, um, just a, a sprint stage today. So basically, just tune in for the last five kilometers. No need to be checking your laptop at work for this one. It's all uh, all down to the end. And yeah, um, so big favorite was kind of two two big favorites. Mark Cavendish and Caleb Ewan were all kind of unsure of where he'd be after that stage one crash. Um, but physically, he seemed fine. However, his Lotto Sadal team don't seem to have their lead out quite as well drawn in as quick steps. And uh, yeah, basically the lead out Cavendish was given was good enough for him. And he launched extremely long, big, long strength sprint, really showing his strength, edging out Arno Demar and Fernando Gaviria with a Binium Gamay again coming in fourth. So this man can sprint also. He can do these big bunch sprints and his positioning doesn't look great, but his, uh, his max power looks solid. So, so yeah, really versatile ride from him. Um, and yeah, eight for Caleb Ewan after some poor positioning, but he showed a really good spurt of um, strength while he did ride. But unfortunately, he's kind of just overtaking some donkeys at that point, going around from about 14th to finishing eighth. So, so yeah, that was that. That's incredible. Uh, Cavendish is now, what, uh, 36 years old, uh, probably written off only, what, one and a half, two years ago, um, having not got a win for uh, two, three years. And of course, his uh, age, his uh, health background, uh, but still showing he's at the top level, still picking up results at the biggest of races, biggest of stages. Yeah. And uh, it's incredible to see. Um it's just grit and determination not to give up. People count him out, including myself, and he comes back and he's like, I showed you. And, you know, it probably uses a lot stronger language, but uh, it's incredible to see, like, uh, started his career in, what, 2005? Um, and uh, with the people in racing were probably in the nappies when he got his first win, and he's, he's still <laughs> up there today, you know? Yeah, it's crazy and incredible career. And, you know, when he was starting to go downhill at Dimension Data, um, kind of that was the team he was at when he first really started to decline. I I thought it was just because of that team. That team was really bad, really no performances. I thought it must just be the training staff, the culture there must, must not be that. Um, I was expecting things from him at Bahrain Victorious, kind of a bit of a more successful team, although probably fair to say also not a great sprint team and yeah his results were similarly lacking there but as soon as he's gone to quick step where many uh sprinters have really flourished over the years just really very quickly became a world-class sprinter again in just a matter of months and here he is now um his only issue is he's tied with Eddie Merckx on the most uh Tour de France stage wins I don't think he'd be desperate to be here at this Giro but I think this Giro is his chance to prove himself to his team manager, Patrick Lefevre, that he should also get to go to the Tour. He's in big competition uh, with Fabio Jakobsen, who's currently seen as the number one sprinter at Quick Step. although after maybe a slightly disappointing Tour of Hungary for him, I think the question's there and hopefully Cavendish can uh, get selected for the Tour and really go and chase that um, that record number of Tour de France stage wins.
I think we can't mention uh, Cavendish's win without mentioning his lead-out man, Michael Morpok, the Danish. Uh, again, he's very, very experienced at the age of 37, and he can uh, quite literally hand any sprinter uh, the best lead-out. He's, he's tipped or it's well known that he's the best lead-out man to have, and uh, he showed it again today, or rather on stage three of uh, the Giro. Yeah, Morkov, just absolutely phenomenal, the best lead-out rider in the world by an absolute mile. Not that strong, but just his racing brain and his, his quad, just command of the bike and just the snap decisions he makes so quickly are just on another level to anyone else. Absolutely outstandingly intelligent rider. And, and yeah, I think was part of the deal for Cavendish to come to the tour. I believe Morkov... Uh, I can't remember what stage it was, but he's now left the race um, because obviously Tour de France stage wins are more important and he's going away to train for the Tour. Not many sprint stages left at this Giro here, but he was just here basically treating it as a one-week stage race, giving Cav all he could for the um, sprint stages in this first part of the Giro. And now he's off to help whoever the, the sprinter is at the Tour. So... So, yeah, really invaluable rider and he should be being paid big, big money because both Mark Cavendish and Fabio Jakobsen's win rate go up exponentially if he's also starting the race with them. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, it's sad to see him go, but at the same time, um, Quick Step obviously have an eye on the Tour de France, of course, uh, Morkov does also. Uh, but it leaves Cavendish in a slightly precarious position he hasn't picked up any other wins since, and it will be interesting to see if he even does, um, or if he even stays for the full course. So, time will tell. For sure, for sure. And, uh, yeah, kind of Arno Demar, his lead-out's not great as well. Caleb Ewan's also very shaky, so probably without any dominant team to lead it out, I'd say Quickstep probably still has the best lead-out with uh, Bart van Leerberg. A fantastically that man also now stepping into last man for Cavendish and yeah he's still got a good chance but yeah chances of Cavendish winning without Murkov uh, uh, definitely definitely gone down now he's left just to wrap up stage three then so uh, Van der Poel stays in pink and uh, we go over to Italy uh, so as you mentioned earlier a bit of a rest day a bit of a travel day and now they're going to uh, climb Mount Etna, which uh, I believe is still a, an active or very active volcano. Yeah, I did a geography case study on it for GCSE geography, but <laughs> sadly I can't remember any of it. I think, yeah, Asma, our resident geography teacher on the British oh, yeah. Titan Scholarships, might be able to tell us more, but yeah, I've got nothing, got nothing on it anymore, to be honest, sadly. Yeah, for fair play. Uh, so Mount Etna, mountainous stage, or the first mountainous stage of the Tour de France, I mean, Stuart Italia, uh, and it was almost certain Van would give up his uh, pink jersey. He's just not built to climb mountains. Uh, well, not at the speed of the others. Uh, he'll definitely rip us to shreds, of course. Uh, <laughs> he won't be keeping up with the lightweights. And uh, yeah, what was the race like? Yeah, so uh, breakaway going early on. I've seen at the Giro, people are kind of the main main favourites, quite happy to give away the race lead um, to lesser riders in the first week. The rider who then takes that jersey early on 
is then the one who has to cope with all the media pressure, all the interviews after the race, meaning they get back to the hotel later and they don't get to rest as well. So I think we at this stage, as it's kind of we've seen similar stages previously at the Giro, uh, they've allowed a big break to go, giving them just enough rope so that a rider gets to take the stage and also goes into lead in GC, someone who they wouldn't expect to be able to be a competitor overall. And this time, there were lots of strong guys in the breakaway. Uh, young Jumbo Visma rider, Luis Limerizer, uh, was the one I picked out of the breakaway to win. Very successful under 23 career. However, maybe this Grand Tour is just too big a step up for him. He came in sixth. Ahead of him, um, Juan Pedro Lopez was the first serious rider to really get away. Young guy from Trek, or not that young anymore, I think 24. He had a big gap and uh, was in the virtual GC lead by quite a margin at some point. He was then getting chased down by Leonard Kemner, only 37 37 seconds behind Juan Pedro Lopez on GC. Although he managed to catch Lopez, didn't manage to get him enough to also take the GC. And uh, yeah, great win for Leonard Kemner on the stage. However, it was Juan Pedro Lopez who, who moved into pink after this stage. So... So, yeah, great day out for those in the break. Absolutely. Um, and uh, then we go into, what, stage five now. Uh, another flat one. Um, so money should be on Cavendish to take the win. Uh, however, it wasn't the case. No, no. Um, we saw this stage. I think, uh, yeah, Cavendish and Ewan still, still seen as favourites to win. However, this stage had a very large, tough climb probably still about 100 kilometres from the finish. And the big question was whether other teams would go and try and get rid of Cav to make it hard for him, basically to make him sure he wasn't there for the sprint. And uh, they succeeded. The team that really seemed to pick it up first was Alperson Fenix. It was unclear why, as their main sprinter had left already, I believe. Or maybe it was... Yeah, I think he left the previous day just because he... Missed the time cut, is too far behind there. Jakob Moretzko, really not a very physically fit fit guy, but can sprint quite well in a nice, easy race. And uh, yeah, we saw Caleb Ewan was actually the first major sprinter to be spat, given his previous climb performance. This is quite a surprise, and I believe it later turned out it was a very poorly timed bike change that meant he was dropped by so much. Cavendish also later then dropped and also Arno Demar, so kind of the three big favourite sprinters drops. Demar able to get back in, uh, despite uh, numerous teams keeping the pressure on on the front after the climb. Once Demar was back in, his uh, Group Armour FTG teammates also helping to keep Cavan Ewan at bay. They were successful in this, and we saw, saw it all lining up for a sprint without Two main protagonists in this sprint field being Mark Cavendish and Caleb Ewan. Coming into the sprint, it was pretty dominant from Arno Demar, really, getting the best of uh, Gaviria with uh, Nizolo in third. And yet again, our man Binyam Gamay coming in fifth, looking like he's going after this uh, points competition jersey also. So, yeah, a, a surprise win. bit gutting for both Lotus Stalin and Quickstep. Both teams work incredibly hard to get their sprints back in, but sadly to no avail. Yeah, incredible win from Arno Dumas. And uh, Arno Dumas seems to enjoy the Giro. He, he's picked up 
what was it, three stage wins so last time around, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I think his previous oh, campaign right. last year wasn't as successful, but yeah, 2020, super dominant, won many a stage there and in very dominant style. And looks like we're back to seeing the best of Arno Damar after this after this sprint and this first week so far. Maybe it's the win he needed to kickstart the rest of his season. So. For sure. Uh, yeah. uh, so it's interesting how the Giro has been lined up. You know, they started in Hungary and then uh, they went to the bottom obviously or Sicily rather climbing Mount Etna and they're working their way north slowly slowly so stage six we're looking at Palmi to Scalea um, another flat one uh, talk us through it yeah an incredibly boring stage really really slow all day and um, yeah coming into the finish with very little action I believe this was the stage where Diego Rosa was sent off on his own um, really thrown out to the wolves there and yeah just had to had to take it essentially one man out on his own all day in the breakaway, um, brought back quite easily uh, by the sprint teams. And again, a hectic finale, Cavendish going early with his sprint, unreal photo finish between Caleb Ewan and Arno Demar. Arno Demar in a headwind coming off Caleb's Ewan wheel perfectly at the right time and ultimately looking like the strongest sprinter in the stage, which in the race, which... Uh, with Cavendish and you in there, real big surprise. This is arguably, in my opinion, the best Arno Demar we've ever seen. And he's making a firm case for being the best sprinter in the world right now. And yeah, really impressive with uh, Ewan and Cavendish gutted. But great ride by Demar. And that's two, two stage wins in a row for him. So big, big surprise. He wasn't expected even to win a stage in this, this race, but... Definitely a favourite to win the points competition now. And yeah, really good to see him back to his best. And I'm sure his team will be hoping for similar at the Tour de France. Therefore, the closest finish I've ever seen, Rob. Uh, if listeners, if you haven't already, just type in stage six, Giro uh, d'Italia uh, finish. You don't even need uh, to watch the video. Just, just go to Google Images and it's, uh, you, you can't call it. You can't. I don't know how they decided who won that. It's stage. crazy, crazy how close it is. And ultimately, Caleb Ewan, a very small guy, Arno Damar, a big guy, and they throw their bikes out in front of them. And yeah, <laughs> Arno Damar, Damar's front wheel, it's where you throw when your front wheel crosses the line that counts. And Arno Damar's front wheel's in front of Caleb Ewan, but Caleb Ewan's body definitely crosses the line before Damar. So, so yeah. Did you see the wheel in front, but I, honestly, I, I couldn't see it millimetres, millimetres, definitely less than a centimetre. Crazy how close it was. And yeah, fair play to Damar, timed it perfectly. And sadly, heartbreak, Lottie Sadal, their star rider in their whole roster, another near miss and uh, no sprint stage win for him so far with not many left. And we're kind of unsure how many he'll do. Caleb Ewan expected to leave this Giro early to prepare for the tour. So um yeah, could be leaving winless um, from this first Grand Tour of the year, which is uh, not great for Lotte Sadal. So, um, stage seven, we're on to uh, back to Hidi Serene. We're going from Diamante to Potenza. Uh, one potentially build for the breakaway. Uh, however, uh, how, did it, how did it work out? Yeah, one absolutely begging for a breakaway, real aggressive start. This was a race it was worth watching beginning to end. 
absolutely fantastic seeing all those fighting for the breakaway. And um, yeah, uh, the ones we saw, the real top guys in the breakaway were Tom DeMoulin, Davide Formolo, Balcom Olimer, and Cohen Bauman. Tom DeMoulin, a teammate of uh, Cohen Bauman, and uh, ended up kind of those two against Davide Formolo and Balcom Olimer. Uh, we were seeing this was also the first stage, which was potentially key for the King of the Mountains classification. And we kind of got an idea from watching those King of the Mountain classification sprints, who was the strongest sprinter out of this group. And it was quite clearly Cohen Bauman, uh, who was strongest, probably the least known rider out of this lead four. And um, yeah, he was kind of making it well known that he was the man to beat in the sprint. I think Formolo, Balcom Olimer and... Uh, even Tom de Moon would be seen as stronger climbers. So it was kind of really on, on Balcom Olimer and Formolo. They wouldn't want to be going to the finish with this man because from what you're showing in this King of the Mountain sprints, he really, really had their number. So they were kind of looking to drop him. Uh, but yeah, sadly to no avail. And uh, that sets us up for stage eight. Naples to Naples or Napoli to Napoli. Another hilly stage and one perhaps for the breakaway. Um, how do you work out? Yeah, so after Cohen Bauman's win yesterday, it was another one for the break today. Uh, Van der Poel attacking almost immediately and taking a very large group with him. This group containing Gillian Martin, a rider who's pretty much known for going down slightly in GC just to then sneak into a breakaway and... Uh, get back within GC contention, which he's done again here. Um, the race was very on all day, very intense racing with uh, Thomas de Ghent getting away with Davide Gabro, Jorge Arcus and Harm Van Hooker. Harm Van Hooker, a teammate of Thomas de Ghent. Thomas de Ghent seen as one of the best breakaway artists of his generation, taking many, many stages in uh, hilly breakaways. And um, when that breakaway split on the wrong side of it was uh, Van der Poel, Wout Poles, Gillian Martin, Biniam Gamay, and another young superstar, Mauro Schmidt. These group, these uh, five were chasing, chasing them down, but to no avail. They got close, but not quite there. Thomas de Ghent taking the sprint ahead of the favourite to take the sprint, who was Davide Gaburo. He's uh, done all right in some uh, world world tour sprints but again clearly the man with fresher legs and uh yeah Biniam Gamay probably a bit gutted he didn't get to catch that group in front smoking both uh Mauro Schmidt and Matthew Van der Poel in their group to, to take fifth place so yeah really looking for Gamay a lot more points in the bag this points competition looking like a battle between him and uh Arno Demar at this point uh, just for the listeners, again, is uh, well known for his breakaway prowess. Uh, I don't think he's got one for a while, actually, uh, but I'm, I'm glad he's got enough one. It just reminds us of what he's capable of, you know. Yeah, yeah. De Ghent saying, I think a lot of people doubt him again, and he said in interviews he's lost a lot of his own self confidence in the past years because he's not been the rider he was potentially three or four years ago. But today, really strong showing from the man and very well deserved win. And, Great for Lotto Sadal uh, with Caleb Ewan not producing the, the expected win by this point. Um, but yeah, real great stuff from Lotto Sadal showing they can win without Caleb 
So, so yeah, fantastic to see. And then that sets us up for uh, yesterday's stage, stage nine. Uh, the big one to Blockhouse, uh, big mountain stage uh, with GC uh, perhaps not won, but perhaps lost there. Yeah, lost for a lot of the big favourites uh, this stage where I think we kind of get a clear idea of who's in the mix. Jiro's done very well to hide it, hide it by stage nine. But yeah, essentially breakaway got away. And then uh, they were, or the writing was on the wall, even from about 100 kilometres out, that they were going to get caught. We saw Ineos pacing extremely hard, burning potentially Richie Port. Richie Port pacing really hard on the climb, really thinning the group out. This pace enough to uh, crack both Simon Yates and Wilco Kelderman and also Julia Ciccone from Trek. And uh, Simon Yates, second favourite to win this race overall. Come very close to winning this race previously. But um, yeah, spat, real big favourite going in. And uh, partly blamed, blamed this on... The knee injury and also partly blamed it on the heat. So, yeah, real heartbreak for uh, Bike Exchange, the Bike Exchange team, which have put a large part of their early season into Simon Yates performing at this Giro, but just not to be. It's, uh, it's difficult. Oh, I wouldn't say it's difficult, Yates, but it's happened before, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, it's later. happened. Yeah. Perhaps they turned the stage as opposed to so early, but um, yeah, it has happened before. Uh, yeah, and uh, in a smaller stage race, he did just before this Giro. He won two stages, but in the so he won the first and the third one, but in the second one, he got dropped significantly on a climb and again blamed it on the heat. And really disappointing from Bike Exchange. They did such a great job getting his position so dialed in that he'd win the time trial, but. Really, really poor from them that he hadn't undergone uh, a proper heat acclimation um, protocol to get him ready, ready for this racing. Because if you're racing in in this more southern part of Europe in May, very large chance of it being hot. We saw a hot day yesterday, and Yates has really paid for not being specifically prepped in the heat. Other riders will have whether they go in hot baths, whether they go in a heat chamber, whether they train for a week in a hot place. It's quite easy to get heat acclimated and a big oversight by Team Bike Exchange, who've also previously blamed um, blamed the heat on Yates' significant performances. So sad to see they've uh, not got this problem addressed then. Yeah, it looks like... Uh, so that leaves, what, Juan Pedro, uh, Pedro Lopez with a... Uh, Think Jersey, uh, and it's quite tight uh, with the top twelve being within ninety seconds. Uh, yeah, so strongest three the, on the yeah. stage were uh, Rowan Bardet, Richard Carapaz, and Mikel Lander. However, some some slow paced at the end allowed a couple to get back, and Jay Hindley winning the sprint quite significantly and in good dominant fashion, and him winning the stage. But yeah. Juan Pedro Lopez managing to hold on to the jersey, only 146 down on the day. And uh, now the slim GC lead, which is uh, almost certainly going to go by the next uh, by the next rest day. And Jai Hindi uh, came close a few years ago. Uh, what is his chance of this year, do you think? 
Um, yeah, I don't think many people would have given him any chance when he almost won it in 2020, coming second behind Theo Gegenhardt then. I'd say his chances are pretty low, probably below 10% chance for Jai Hindi of actually winning, even though he's won this stage. Um, Carapaz, Arde and Lander look significantly stronger. Yao Almeida also holding on to that group and not losing time. And uh, in the final time trial, he'll be taking back a lot of time on Hindley and has really proved himself in the uh, last week of a Grand Tour before. But can't write Hindley out. I'd say he's the fifth most likely to win at the moment. Carapaz being my favourite, then Lander, then Bardet, then Almeida. And then uh, I'd say it's unlikely Hindley will win, but um, he's got a good chance and a lot of strong teammates around him. Emmanuel Bookman also not far off GC with the Bora Hansgrohe team to help out there. Yeah, yeah. We're going to be next on uh, on the next rest day uh, after stage 15, but what's coming on uh, between now and then, we're slowly making our way further north in Italy. Uh, there's some uh, pretty, uh, I would say, uh, non-interesting stages. Uh, the meat of the GC battle takes place in the last week. However, uh, there was still some racing going on between now and the next rest day. Uh, what are we looking at? Yeah. So stage 10, quite a hard stage. It's probably, well, not that hard. First half's pan flat, then some hills at the end probably enough to spit urine and cav. And uh, this will be a great stage potentially for Binium Gamay to win, maybe also Matthew Vanderpoel. Um, so yeah, probably a, a reduced, a very reduced bunch sprint. After that, we have stage 11, which will be a pure bunch sprint, absolutely pan flat. So we'll see, I expect the showdown between Cavendish, Ewan and Demar, firmly establishing themselves as the key three sprinters, but also... Nizolo, Gomai, and Fernando Gaviria, also potentials to win. After that, stage 12, likely to be a semi-interesting breakaway stage, but I doubt we'll see any GC action. Um, if you if you like like watching some lower, lower key riders get some glory, maybe a good stage to tune in for, but nothing too exciting GC-wise. After that, stage 13, Kind of a similar story, um, potentially going to be a sprint stage coming out of San Remo. This could be a really beautiful race to watch, a lot of nice scenery, but yeah, probably not going to be too great a racing, sadly. Uh, potentially a breakaway, maybe, probably a sprint coming back. Um, and then after that, for the weekend, for Saturday and Sunday, we do actually have some quite interesting racing, um, Sunday especially some hilly racing, which uh, could see some GC action for sure. But like you say, Sage and there'll be that last week where I feel this Giro will be decided. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I thought it might be uh, worth mentioning uh, Nibali has announced his retirement or he plans to retire at the end of this season. And, uh, it will be set yeah. to see him go. Someone who's won several stage, uh, Grand Tour stages and the Grand Tour uh, Grand Tours will stop. All three, one of the very few to have won all three Grand Tours. So, yeah, big name leaving the sport. And he came back after a disappointing ride on Etna on stage four. Great comeback ride for him. And looks looks like definitely he's capable of a top 10 or a stage win. I think the podium probably a bit too much to ask. But, yeah, never count him out. He's looking good, looking to come back. And 
Oh, he's always done some spectacular stuff in the third week of a Grand Tour before, so so keep your eye out for him. One of the most underrated uh, riders in the Peloton, I think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Slow season start so far, but third week of a Grand Tour, yeah, don't underrate him. He, he can come good. Rob, uh, that's probably a wrap. So nine stages uh, completed. Uh, rest day uh, and about what six stages before we're on again. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Lots of interesting tracing to watch and see you soon. Thanks for coming on, mate. All right, cheers. Thanks.